Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Brendan here with Mark, Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. Vetgurus at gmail.com to send us an email and enter in for our 200th episode giveaway. Vetgurus at gmail.com. Episode 196, Friday the 2nd of July 2021. And Mark, it's all happening up your way, isn't it? Um, speaking of regional problems, um, our lockdown has sort of been released here and um, over up in New South Wales, Sydney region and the Valley region where you are, the Hunter Valley and that, and uh, so, so Newcastle, the Central Coast, um, has had a bit of a lockdown going on. What's happening? Well, I don't even know what to say, Brendan. I was in <laughs> um, I was in Sydney last week for a meeting and I, I managed to dance around that pox-ridden Sydney city without um, going across any of the local government areas that apparently had a problem. Um, but... Uh, but, but, you know, in typical fashion with the new Delta variant that's ultra infectious um, and exponentially rose to uh, affect increasing areas, um, our whole, uh, um, whole of the Greater Sydney area and now our whole state has gone into lockdown. And crikeys, we've been doing it for uh, all of three days now and I don't know how you guys did it for three months down there we're going crazy yeah it's a it's a big balance isn't it between stopping the virus as best you can and stopping people going nuts and rioting (laughs) I I think it's the same in all all countries of the world with this with this little virus, Mark, yes. So enough about COVID. I think we need to jump onto something else because, um, yeah, we should. Um, <laughs> you want to? I think you should jump into before our news story. I reckon we're going to shake things up a little bit here, Mark. You can jump into your review. You have a review of a, I think, a software product. I do indeed, Brendan. To- we um, uh, we here in Australia, and I think around the world, uh, are required by law to keep a register of our um, restricted drugs, the Schedule 8 medications that we use here. The Schedule 8 is the particular classification of those drugs here in Australia. Um, and for a long time, the law said that you could only use a, um, you know, a book a particular handwritten book. Um, They were difficult and laborious, um, time-consuming, and so I've long looked forward to the time when the the regulators would permit us to use some form of electronic um, uh, register. That's happened over the last sort of 18 months here in New South Wales, and my understanding is that the Department of Health in each of the jurisdictions around Australia is gradually moving to allow this. Um, and we've been using one, the one made by a company called Modius. Uh, it goes under the trade name of Vet S8. It logs, it, uh, you know, does that computer thing where it talks to your practice management software and keeps a register of all the product, all the sales, all the, you know, everything that's invoiced that is classified as a Schedule 8 gets sent over electronically. You still have to go into the, the, um, 
the, the software and add certain invoices. They don't get transferred immediately. And you have to go in and uh, review the, tra- the, the actual supply to patient um, records and make sure they're accurate and sign off on them. Um, and there have been, like we've had this product now for 12 months, um, and um, there have been some teething uh, uh, issues with the way that uh, the the Bed S8 software talks to our practice management software. But I think we're getting to the stage now where um, where with most of the major software manufacturers, the veterinary practice management software manufacturers, those problems are slowly being overcome. And uh, and certainly, I think. Um, these uh, electronic registers will be time-saving and um, and they'll be the way of the future, Brendan. Yes, and I must admit, I was just, while you were chatting there, I was looking up the one that's potentially can be integrated with the practice software management program we have. And guess what? It's exactly the same one um, that you're using in that they can um, link it in with with the management system I use. And, yes, I, I still currently use the old... Um, There's nothing wrong with pen, a book, nothing wrong with a piece pen of paper. And pencil and a bit of ledger um, and <laughs> a bit of... Um, a bit of I have my little ink ink pad there, Mark, and um, I dip my, nib. I dip my pe- nib into the ink and away I go. The only problem is being left-handed. I don't um, Using ink with a nib pen when I was in primary school... Um, I used to get slapped around the wrist um, because you'd smudge it, you know, <laughs> being left-handed. You'd, and, and, and when you're writing with a, a, a nib pen and you get your pen license, do you remember? Yes. You know, I used to do a thing where you got your pen license, <laughs> which um, I don't know what that meant, but I, I, I think it meant you could actually, uh, you know, be proud. Right, indelibly. And, and, and you could... Um, Put a pen in your in a shirt pocket like a real nerd, and um, claim that you've got your pen license. Um, yeah, so I used to smudge all, all the all the ink when I was trying to write with the, the nib and the ink mark. Um, would, and they would, were cartridge. They were ink cartridge pens. That's what we used. You use those probably, I expect, Mark. Um, little refillable cartridges. So we're not we weren't quite in the ages of, of using wells. The, the big bottle of ink or the inkwell um but cartridge ink pens gee and i think and um that that brings back some Jeez, memories your, Mark. your yes. written essay register must be a debacle then brendan <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's it's beautiful cursive writing and uh, it, it looks lovely yes. well i think so, I, yes i, I could, think you're gonna have to and i know you're one of the um you know the uh, uptakers of new technology um, par excellence. You're always looking for new ways to to take advantage of computer systems or whatever. Um, you'll be onto this in no time, and um, and it will it will considerably help, I reckon. Good. So, what do you give it out of ten, Mark? Oh, the solid um, eight point six. Eight point six. That's a good score. That is a very good score. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to jump onto now. This is pretty close to my heart this one mark in in many ways my news story it's about the the butterfly that's in my area mark and um the the story is butterfly flaps its wings in montmorency which is a suburb near me and upends a 530 million dollar rail plan 
and it was a track duplication on the Hurstbridge line, which is the train line that goes um, close to where I live, was prom- which goes into the CBD here in Melbourne, and the upgrade was um, planned to um, increase the you know um, number of trains that would go per hour, and and um, with the duplication of the line, but they've. Um, and it was involving duplicating about three kilometres of a single track between Greensboro and Montmorency Station. And the work started on the project after some um, um, preparation work. And then um, last year it was paused because a local spotted the endangered Eltham copper butterfly mark in random bushland near the station in January. And now under the revised plan, Parts of the rail line will no longer be duplicated where the butterfly habitat is. And this Eltham copper butterfly mark, um, I was in the backyard not that long ago, last summer, and this butterfly was flittering around and I was I was pottering around doing a bit, little bit of woodworking and, and gardening in, in the backyard and um, I thought that looks a little bit like an Eltham copper butterfly. And it's a nationally listed endangered butterfly and it's only found in several sites around the Melbourne region including Eltham and Research, which is the suburb I'm in, and isolated spots in, in um, country Victoria. And it was considered extinct from the 1950s until it was rediscovered in 1986, Mark. And it was indeed the ultimate copper butterfly that was doing its thing around our back garden, Mark, because I took a couple of pictures of it. And um, sure enough, it was the ultimate copper butterfly. So it stopped um, this track duplication, which I'm not happy about because I can't get to the... um, the city is quick, Mark, or that we'll have to wait another 10 minutes for the next train. So there you go. But that, I think that the, the concern was with the, with the locals and the, the local um, paper was that um, how the hell did they miss it when they did a, a – the government did a bit of a um, – um, environmental assessment or assessments um, before the duplication and um, maybe the butterflies weren't out those days that they were doing the assessment. I think it's a common thing, though, with, like, I I was looking at a report the other day which suggested that ever since environmental assessments had come in, um, no um, major project had been held up. So maybe the Eltham butterfly is going to be the first one that actually stops a significant project. Yes. And it does beg the question, at what point do you decide to you know, stop a project or not, Mark? Do we stop? The, and and I think this is a, you know, it is a critically endangered species, so I'd, I'd, I would prefer that they don't duplicate it, that track because it is not something that's life-saving, you know. Yeah. Um, be nice to have, but, um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of environmental protests about things that maybe, um, you know, you have to debate whether or not it's important. And, and generally, uh, well, I'm like you, I'd, I'd always go on the side of the animal um, and saving that species um, where it's appropriate. But um, where, do you, where do you draw the line, Mark? Well, Brendan, I can hear your heart beating faster as a consequence of your passion <laughs> for Is this that. Where you, you draw a segue until the, 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 the butterfly, um, a butterfly flaps its wing somewhere. <laughs> I don't want to... To wander into too much chaos. <laughs> um, 
Yes. Okay. I, I, let's I'm get with on you. One hundred thousand percent. I reckon um, uh, there are. We we are going to mourn the loss of so many things that were savable, just yes. so we could have. <clears throat> an extra train line or an extra car park or a few extra houses in a suburb, we, we, will, we will be mourning these things. And, and everyone that we save in 50 years' time will be lauded as, as uh, so far-sighted and, and um, wise. Um, yeah, just save the butterfly. That's my tip. And that does make my heart beat faster <laughs> because um, my story is about uh, a comparison. And I told you before that um, the, the um, reptilian heartbeat, the, the um, heartbeat of herps, plays a special role in my education. I'll tell you about that later. Um, but um, this article tells us that... Um, Crocodilians, which have similar four-chambered hearts to mammals, they are uniquely resistant to temperature. And this series of experiments compared uh, the hearts of um, of rabbits um, and the hearts of alligators and examined their response to variations in temperature. And in particular, um, uh, the rate at which they slipped into dangerous arrhythmias, particularly fibrillation. Um, and of course, when the temperatures um, dropped, hardly surprising, the rabbit hearts became uh, irregular in their beat. Um, but in the case of the alligators, uh, over a full range of 10 to 37 degrees centigrade, um, the heart just continued to pump along like it always did. Um, and I suppose that for those of us that are familiar with the concept of preferred optimal temperature zones, um, the adaptability of reptiles to maintain metabolism over that wide range of temperatures is hardly a surprise. Um, but uh, it does mean, um, and I mean, it's an interesting research topic because if we could identify some of the things that protect alligators' hearts from the yes. effects of fibrillation, then maybe we could apply that to um, certain health situations, but um, but yeah, it's pleasing to know. Um, and the researchers said that they were particularly surprised at the massive difference. It wasn't just like a, a you know a slight tendency or a nuance. The crocodilian heart was absolutely rock solid, resilient to the changes in temperature, while the rabbit heart demonstrated the fragility of the mammalian metabolism when it comes to temperature. Yes, the croc just says, whatever. <laughs> whatever. You know, call me, warm me. I does, doesn't matter. I just keep um, beating away. And it was a it was a small study, Mark, wasn't it, done at the Petite Institute for Bioengineering <laughs> and Bioscience <laughs> in Georgia. Yes, I'd like to visit the Petite Institute for Bioengineering. I'd, I'd want to... Um, yeah, I'd want to just sneak around there and, and not get in the way and um, make sure that I have, I'm socially distanced and it probably um, is quite a small lab, perhaps, maybe not. I'd like to see it one day. Um, it did I've remind a, me, just before, I'll go, you go first. You go <laughs> yes, first. Yes. Courtesy no, dictates no. that you go first. You wanted to chat about, speaking of beating hearts, you yes. told me a pretty horrific story that scarred you um, I am your still early days at, at university. Yes. I'm still scarred. In, for, in our uh, f uh, physiology, 
uh, the class of physiology in, I'm um, pretty sure it was second year. We, um, uh, in those ages ago, we um, uh, had cane toads, a pest species here in Australia that were um, pithed to be uh, killed promptly and pain-free. And then um, we were able to dissect their still-beating heart, uh, cannulate the vena cava, attach it to a burette, and then run different fluids through while monitoring the changes those um, electrolyte solutions had on the the heart. Those hearts beat outside the the toad's body for um, you know for twenty minutes uh, before um, we um, ran the potassium chloride solution through and um, and caused them to seize up. And I'm still shocked that we're allowed to do that then. I know, I know that that uh, procedure has um, since been stopped, but um, you're right, I'm scarred from it from all those years ago, decades ago. Yes, I don't think we did that particular sort of process as we spoke about off air before we started. We certainly did the old frog dissection, but as far as I can recall, it was not... Um, didn't have bits beating, Mark, or, or twitching still. Um, although I'm still, I still get quite um, feel a little bit upset when I'm doing a postmortem examination on a on a reptile that I've euthanized and confirmed that its heart's um, stopped many minutes or hours after I've euthanized it, and then um, I perform the postmortem, and you have little twitches here and there. Um, it still happens occasionally, and I'm sure you you. I've had the similar situation. It's very disconcerting. And those uh, reptile hearts, as in the alligators, they don't give up even when the rest of the body is gone. Yes. And speaking of not giving up, Mark, um, we want to talk about a main topic because we don't give up giving fantastic main topics to our listeners. And don't forget to send an, an email to us at vetgurus at gmail.com because we're almost upon that 200th episode where we will give away a swag of prizes to one lucky supporter who just sends us an email and you get entered into the competition, which is a giveaway. It's not necessarily a competition because there's no terms and conditions, Mark. The terms and conditions are send us an email and we'll send you some stuff if you're lucky. So... We'll jump into that main topic, Mark, and, and it's one that you suggested. We've sort of touched on this several, well, probably more than several times, and that's the old chestnut metabolic bone disease or the variations thereof, whatever you want to call the particular syndrome, but we'll just lump it into metabolic bone disease. It may not technically be the correct terminology um, to use these days, but um, MD, MBD or calcium vitamin D, deficiency syndrome let's call it that if you like in juvenile bitter dragons mark why did you choose juvenile bitter dragons i chose them i chose to talk to them to, to about this topic tonight for several reasons brendan um because we're just past the um the the winter solstice here so the days are starting to get longer again and um and we are looking forward to that part of the year when uh our bearded dragons will mate and breed and um and then it'll only be a little while longer of a position and um and then we'll have hatchlings um and Crikey's, even at this time of year, we get to see some uh, some late hatchlings from last year who uh, have not grown very well. And then the, the uh, 
even though they're in a, an enclosure that has a hot spot that's adequate, the gradient away from that obviously causes some problems for the young animals and we start to get signs of, of uh, metabolic bone disease, Brendan. And I think the important point there is, and that's why you chose it, is how common is this condition? And um, that was going to be my first question, which you've already answered, in that it is pretty damn common. I say to the the, um, the vets that I work with that um, if you've got a baby bearded dragon that's ill, um, it has metabolic bone disease until proven otherwise. And so many of the conditions that they get are complicated uh, by the comorbidity of uh, metabolic bone disease superimposed on them. So one of the things that we'll often see with these guys is um, constipation, obstipation. They can't go to the toilet. People often come into us and go, oh, I see you moving strange and you can't go to the toilet. While that's the proximate problem and the thing that's worrying the owners, um, it's almost certain that a combination of uh, inadequate uh, uh, muscle contractile strength in the wall of the intestine, inability to move normally through the nervous functions, and possibly even some compromise to the way that they move by maybe some pathological fractures in the spine. All these things will contribute to that poor lizard not being able to go to the toilet. And if you just do one thing, soak them and, and try and get the poop out, that might not be enough to turn them around, Brendan. Yes. And speaking of signs, Mark, let's go through other potential clinical signs that these animals might be brought into the clinic where you suspect that or you end up confirming that it has this group of disease processes going on there. So the first one is constipation. What's the next one do you see? What are, what other signs do we see with them? Well, we definitely tremble. We definitely uh, see them have, you know, the sort of classic trembling associated. But honestly, that tends to be something that yeah, you, <laughs> our, our listeners won't realise that since we've gotten the new form of podcast uh, app, um, Brendan and I can now see each other, not, alone, not only hear each other. And Brendan looks like he's dancing to me at the moment as he demonstrates all the potential clinical signs that young beta dragons might have. But um, that one of the interesting things is that before they often show those more classic signs, I have, I'm often suggesting to people that they look for strength in the legs. So young beta dragons that have normal, uh, you know, normal calcium metabolism will be able to lift their trunk clear off the ground. And often their whole head, trunk and tail and the legs will be the, the feet will be the only thing on the ground. A lot of the lizards that are starting to head towards the more complicated parts of metabolic bone disease will not have the strength to lift their, le uh, their body off the ground. And the cl the classic picture that I always see in my mind with this was a vet told me at one stage was that a, a healthy bearded dragon does push ups. Good description. So they look like they look like they're doing a push up with their front leg. So or what's what's that called? A half push up, you know. Or, um, so yeah, and it, and it's certainly apt in that they are able to you know raise that trunk off the ground, especially with their front legs. They should be raised up um, with those front legs extended. Yes. Um, other signs, Mark. So they 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 yeah. Other signs. <laughs> 
Um, they, they, there's a bunch of um, <laughs> no, try to get the words out. Um, there's a bunch of you know they they uh, often won't eat normally. Um, they'll often um, turn that start to lose their appetite, and that's a combination of response to pain, maybe altered aesthesia because they um, may not sense or taste things. They may not even see properly with altered nervous system function. Um, they will. Uh, often turn their nose up at their routine vegetable material um, and maybe only go for um, the, the insects that uh, are immediately apparent. And, um, and obviously, if they're consuming unsupplemented insects of most species, that's going to exacerbate calcium metabolism problems. One of the things that I would... Uh, um, we always take radiographs of them, Brendan, but I don't know that that's such a good... Um, what am I trying? I'm trying to say that they're really bad by the time you can tell they're bad on radiographs. That um, you have to lose, you have to have less than 25% um, of the normal calcium in the bones before it becomes radiographically evident. So if you take a radiograph and the lizard looks uh, uh, light on for calcium in the bones, they're really, really bad. Um, so yes. uh, taking a radiograph is good and often demonstrative for the clients. Um, but um, many of the lizards that look like they've got normal bones can still have 20 or 30% less calcium in their body than they should have. And I think one of the other classic signs, Mark, which you've sort of hinted at is just, and you may have even mentioned at the very start there, is that just runted, stunted animals compared with the average one for that particular species. Which leads me mainly into the reason that I wanted to talk about this now, because, Brendan, I've got a theory. Um, I must admit... Oh, here we go. I'll sit back and I'll mute my microphone for a little bit. Away you go, Mark. I must you've admit... Got, you've got three minutes. I stole it from <laughs> um, my good friend Adrian Gallagher in Brisbane. But it's this um, this uh, theory, uh, this um, postulate that... Um, a lot of the young animals that we see with metabolic bone disease are actually uh, in a bad place because their mother in particular, the female that grew the eggs, was under nutritional stress to start with. And the reason that we talk about that now is that um, I'm suggesting that bearded dragons that are in that category, female bearded dragons, should not be bred because the eggs they produce will produce young animals that may never have enough um, receptors to adequately absorb calcium. All of us that deal with these lizards know of clients who have done everything correctly, who've supplemented, who've had the ultraviolet light, who've done all the right things, and still those lizards develop metabolic bone disease and crash. And I think that's because they're hamstrung, handicapped, in a, unable to absorb the calcium, um, either because of parasite problems that interfere with their gut function, but often just because they come from dud eggs, Brendan. They should never have, um, have been born. So we're getting back to breeding, aren't we? Getting back to breeding. We get back to the same sort of things every week, don't we? Husbandry, inbreeding, poor breeding. Um, and that's all I've got to say. Now, I just the reason why I'm pausing there is I can still hear this cricket, and I'd just be very interested. Send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. Mark has a cricket 
chirping in the background and it is quite distracting mark i don't know whether you can hear it i can certainly hear it it's i can't hear a thing your mic is oh your mark mic is picking up but, but um your head you can't hear it on your headphones that's all right so okay so there's some of the signs that we see with these juvenile bitter dragons that have the metabolic bone disease sort of syndrome there mark so what's your workup for these what do you do with them and then follow on with the your basic treatment um, process with them and um, yeah well we'll as I mentioned before um, we will take radiographs um, so mainly um, so that uh, we can get a a, it's it's very demonstrative to the client when you show them a radiograph where the soft tissue clouds out more um, of the uh, x-rays than the bone um, they can they quickly realize that um, despite them trying to do all the right things um, things have not gone well and then we the you know the general principle is um, to adjust the husbandry as you said it all comes back to the husbandry so um, we'll maintain their hydration we'll uh, uh, use parental fluids we supplement the parental fluids with um, uh, calcium uh, parental calcium um, and often where we need to move to parental calcium because uh, a lot of these lizards don't have the facility to absorb the calcium from their gut at this stage of the the uh, the disease um, we do try to get them into the water and try and get them to move um, we use a lot of analgesia with these guys we'll often use multimodal analgesia to uh, allow them to feel comfortable moving um, that then helps their gastrointestinal function um, improves the blood flow to the gut um, uh, the normal um, motility of the lizard which uh, encourages the the motility of the gut um, once they aren't feeling pain and they're moving around and often when they uh, get in the water and they have a bit of a gentle swim around um, that tends to improve gastrointestinal function so they can uh, uh, eliminate any droppings and then we can take advantage of the gastrointestinal tract as the avenue to have ongoing supplementation of calcium. It is a project, Brendan, and it would regularly be a, you know, this is something that's not going to get better in these guys overnight Um, and you have to have very dedicated clients and I often talk to them about a 6 to 12-month project with these uh, uh, baby bearded dragons that have um, signs of metabolic bone disease and if they're not on board if the clients aren't on board then it is um, so quality of life affecting that um, that uh, you know considering humane euthanasia is not an inappropriate option in the range of treatments available to these uh, for these lizards and I think that's a very important point you've got there about um, the fact that it's a long-term process with the recovery with these and you need to have a big and long often a long discussion with the clients and assess the client as well as they need to honestly assess themselves about whether or not they've got the they can stand um, that the, they can stay for the long run um, with that animal mark um, regardless of whether it is is one that even if you could look into the future and say this juvenile bearded dragon is going to recover some of the clients just don't have the time or the effort or the or the patience in order to put in the all of that in order to um, recover this animal mark so um, I, I think it's an important step that a lot of 
a lot of vets um, miss out with with these patients and that they're not spending the time with the client asking the client can you spend the time with with the recovery for the treatment um length of length of um time for it i've tied myself in knots there mark but i think you you got the gist of what i was saying there um the process is it's like all like a lot of things with reptiles it's slow isn't it it takes its time it's like that crock heart that beats and beats and beats um longer than it should be and we need to hang in there for the long run it's like repair of shells in in um in our reptiles, in our in our turtles, we had a little. I'm off topic completely here. We had a a little short neck turtle in today with a bit of a lesion on its shell, and I was explaining to the client that this isn't going to be better tomorrow, or next week, or next month. It's going to be several months as a bare minimum until that shell knits together again. So, would you put a point or a percentage mark on the prognosis of these ones? How many of them do you get back from the brink? Look, I think um, that that I, I don't don't. I always worry that uh, when we're talking about these cases and we touch on euthanasia, that we might come across to those that don't know us as maybe a little bit, you know, all too prepared to be doomsayers. Look, I think that the good thing is that as long as you have the appropriate clients who are financially and emotionally prepared to go through the journey, um, with appropriate. Um, care, uh, I reckon a vast majority of them will get well. And particularly if they're gotten, bef- you know, the, probably the big line in the sand for me are pathological fractures, that if we take a radiograph and the poor little hatcho bearded dragon has the kinkiest spine bent left and right all the way down, I think that is, generally speaking, bad. And we need to stop things at that point. Um, but if they're not um, anatomically disturbed, they don't have significant uh, pathological fractures, um, then I think uh, if with care um, and time, as we highlighted before, um, these are eminently treatable animals. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the vast majority of them are going to reach a point where they're okay with appropriate care. Um, but um, but yeah, that you highlighted. It's not a simple one or two tablets and everything's going to be okay. It's a long, hard course uh, with considerable effort and cost, and um, and maybe that's not for everyone. Yes, and I think it's a couple of other conditions that we often see in these juvenile bit of dragons that we always need to search for with these ones as well, Mark, and that's adenovirus. And it is also coccidia, coccidiosis with them as well. And I'm sure we've touched on coccidia before, haven't we? That um, it's pretty damn common in these runty, stunty, young bitter dragons that they've got. They're full of coccidia and they have the metabolic bone disease. Um, and if they've got the the golden triangle, then they've got um, adenovirus as well. Then they, they are they are an individual that we will then be chatting to the client about other options for that patient. It is surprising how many of them have those comorbidities and definitely you're, you're hit, you know, as usual, hit the nail on the head. Um, if they've got a series of several things going on at once, it can be uh, very, they're, they're the ones where the percentages of them that get well drop considerably and it's probably appropriate not to uh, push people to go ahead with them. 
Yes. Well, I think before we finish, Mark, that was quite punchy there. Well done. <laughs> um, you wanted to chat about an email from one of our um, email pests, Nick. <laughs> Don't say such things. We we're, conveniently, so, um, we're so glad to have our discussions with Nick. And, 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 and look, the good thing about our discussions with Nick is that um, he regularly brings uh, a, uh, um, an excellent different perspective to our discussions. It's so often you and I are... Um, uh, speaking as one, um, uh, hardly surprising considering I learned everything I know off you, but um, it's also good to to, um, to listen to the many people who listen to us and see the different ways they do things. Nick wrote to us after, um, uh, after our discussion about uh, ovario hysterectomies in guinea pigs and... Um, and he just confirmed that uh, he really uh, prefers the flank approach um, as well, um, and uh, and pati- we haven't. I don't think we've done a podcast on the um, uh, neutering of male guinea pigs, um, but um, but uh, uh, Nick points out as we are, he is a fan of abdominal incisions to access the testicles, um, but um, you know. I think most of us that deal with guinea pigs have done um, some form of scrotal or pre-scrotal castration and then had to deal with the uh, the wound that swims in urine and guinea pig feces. And um, and so those uh, abdominal incisions really make a difference. And uh, and look, the, the bizarre thing is, despite me talking about the different points of view, Nick comes back to the same uh, basic principles that both you and I do. So um, it's good to hear from Nick. It's good to hear that we do the same things. And um, I look forward to the next email from whoever sends it to us, Brendan. Thank you, Nick. And keep sending them. Um, and with that, the outro man has kicked in. And we look forward to hearing from you soon. Dear listener, vetgurus at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.